Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm going to go to hell. Time for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is serious. 231, look. Talk to the road. Send the police. Send the police. Any guys don't be here, I might. I said, I'm not trying to be here, I but the police are coming. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating the heart and uh, the arm muscle. I'll, I'll wear a male car with his hands, look how he tails and just, just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would do it, whose life would be... I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone, there'd be an enormous amount of uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards, but then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. On July 24, 1984, bearded brothers Ron and Dan Lafferty, radicalized by extreme Mormon beliefs and convinced they were prophets from God, forced their way into a duplex in American Fork, Utah. Here they brutally killed their brother's wife and infant daughter. Believing they had received a revelation from God in which they were told to remove them from the earth. These senseless murders were fueled by religious fanaticism, delusions of grandeur, and a long history of family violence. The older residents of the sleepy Utah town still recall the horrifying events of Pioneer's Day 1984. One resident said, I don't think I'll ever forget. My blood ran cold that day. While another remarked, it damaged so many people's lives. It's amazing how many people it hurt. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Well, we're doing a special this week on the Lafferty Brothers. But before we commence our sordid tale, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Patrons have access to dozens of other episodes, including our early stuff, and levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. We're going to begin our story with a brief history of the Mormon church. But before we do so, we'd like to make it clear that we think people should be allowed to believe in whatever the hell they want to believe in. The case we're covering today involves radicalised members of the Latter-day Saints and what we say about them does not apply to all people involved in the LDS, just the people we're discussing today. Yeah. Joseph Smith was the founder of Mormonism and the founder and first prophet of the Latter-day Saints movement. 
1823, Smith said an angel guided him to a buried book written on golden plates containing the religious history of an ancient people. Smith published what he said was a translation of these plates in March 1830 as the Book of Mormon. Due to their unconventional beliefs, including polygamy, Mormons faced extreme religious persecution at the hands of Orthodox Protestant Christians from the very beginning. They were also in the habit of only conducting business and personal relations with other Mormons. Their divergent beliefs and practices were considered unacceptable to non-Mormons, which resulted in violent clashes between the two groups. On June 27, 1844, this came to a head when a mob pulled Joseph Smith from jail in Carthage, Illinois, where he was waiting to stand trial for wrecking the printing press of a local newspaper that had written about him negatively. The mob then shot and killed him. After Smith's death, the Mormons moved from Nauvoo, Illinois, westward to Utah, led by Smith's controversial successor, Brigham Young. Arriving in what they named Deseret, many Mormons believed they would be left alone by the United States government in this new land as the territory was part of Mexico. Soon after their arrival, the Mexican-American War took place and Mexico was eventually defeated. Under the 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hildago, this land, California and the Southwest were ceded to the United States. Smith's highly contentious revelation of plural marriage threatened to divide the followers of the faith. The Utah Territory was a theocracy ruled by Brigham Young, and Utah was denied statehood for 50 years due to the Mormons' practice of polygamy. On September 23, 1890, Wilford Woodruff, the fourth president of LDS Church, officially banned the practice of polygamy after having received a revelation from God. Six years later, Utah was granted statehood. After the Woodruff Manifesto, some members broke away from the mainstream church to form what eventually became the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or FLDS, which went on to become the most popular group of fundamentalist Mormonism. The FLDS Church encourages polygamy, as do some other breakaway groups. Now, Tara, on to the murderous Lafferty brothers. How did they grow up? Ron and Dan Lafferty grew up in Payson, Utah, in a family of six boys and two girls. Ron was the firstborn and Dan was the second oldest of the brood. The Lafferty's were part of the Church of Latter-day Saints, who first settled in Payson in 1850 and still have a quite a strong following in Utah to this day. Although appearing to be a happy church-going family, the Lafferty's had a dark heart that was beating just below the surface. Their father, Watson Lafferty Sr., he was a stern and angry disciplinarian who beat his wife Claudine, often in front of his children. After one row with his wife, he used a baseball bat to beat the family dog to death. Not cool. I wanted to kill my father every time I saw him hit my mother, Ron would later say. I saw him get mad and bloody her face, bloody her nose. I used to go into my room and curse God for giving me that piece of shit for a father. I shook my fist at God, but I was just too little. Ron and his mother Claudine were very close, and he recalls that also made him the target of his father's rage. Once, he says, his father randomly struck him, then towering over him, pointed at Ron's mother and between clenched teeth hissed, She is mine! Ron was only 10 at the time. Ron would later describe their father as old school, a product of the Great Depression who had his own struggles, having lost his mother to the influenza pandemic when he was five years old. 
Nasty Watson Lafferty Sr. taught his son's paranoia, rebellion, and fanaticism. He instructed his boys to distrust conventional science and medicine. This may have been a holdover from the teachings of early church founders like Brigham Young, who once said of doctors that, A worse set of ignoramuses do not walk the earth. Or maybe Watson had lost faith in doctors after they were unable to save his mother from influenza. Watson Sr. once had a hernia so bad that Dan recalls he could actually hear his father's guts sloshing around inside his abdomen. Oh. For years, Watson Sr. simply gritted his teeth and would try to push his innards back into place with his bare hands. He would eventually die from untreated diabetes. Watson Sr. taught his children that federal and local governments were not to be trusted. He also taught his sons to dismiss women's opinions and showed them that they could get what they wanted through violence and intimidation. He took his religious beliefs to the max. When one son accidentally shot himself in the stomach with an arrow, he told him he would have to endure the pain until morning for breaking the Sabbath. When one of his daughters came down with appendicitis, Watson Sr. said they would treat it with prayer. Only after the appendix burst did he take her to the hospital. Growing up in such an intense and violent household made Ron and Dan Lafferty thick as thieves. The boys were known for their short tempers and willingness to back each other up in a fight. As they grew into men, they took after their father in many ways. Ron's struggles with his father reached breaking point when at 17 they came to blows. Ron had gone out early to help a man in the neighbourhood bring in his hay. He returned home later that morning and was taking a nap on the couch when one of his brothers called him to come pluck some chickens. Ron, already exhausted, flatly refused. No. I'm not plucking those chickens. Um, they didn't ask Sexy Barney to do it. Oh, no? Watson Sr. then rushed in, spoiling for a fight. This time, Ron struck back and his father took off running like a little bitch crying, Mother, Mother. Well, that's according to Ron anyway. Ron says he never had any problems with his father after that moment and almost in spite of his father, he gained a new strength and confidence. After graduating from high school, top of his class in June 1960, Ron was sent to Florida for two years to become a missionary. He excelled in the position and was prolific in converting new members, bringing in over 50 new converts. Now you see, Tara, most missionaries at the time would be lucky to bring in five, with the average acquiring just two. When Ron returned, he brought back a pretty new wife, Diana. They would go on to have six children together. Ron assumed various leadership positions, including three in the LDS and later on the Highland City Council while raising his large family. His brother Dan would do his missionary work in Scotland, where he would meet his wife Matilda, who was divorced with two children. They would go on to have another four kids. Dan eventually took over his father's chiropractic office and was often seen around town talking about God and politics. But in the early 80s, these run-of-the-mill conversations sunk into extreme libertarian activism, with Dan railing against um, paying for licences, taxes and even speeding tickets. He actually, like, chopped up his driver's licence. He, he was, you know, not into being uh, controlled in any way. His tunnel vision made him feel that he was right and nothing could convince him otherwise. Dan even actually ran for sheriff at one point. Oh, how'd that go? Well, it was, wasn't going too badly, but he was unwilling to pay the application fee. He didn't believe in it. And so, you know, he was disqualified from the running. Dan was said to mutter, I won't be controlled by the government. 
He would not let his wife Matilda drive or speak to other men unless in his presence. Dan's activism caused Ron's wife Diana to send Ron over to Dan's place to straighten him out. Instead, Dan convinced Ron to join his cause. It only took a few hours to change Ron from a long-term LDS member to someone who mirrored Dan's radical beliefs. Well, that certainly backfired, didn't it? It really did. <laughs> Jesus. Younger brother, Watson Jr., says Dan could make him believe anything. He convinced him once that by praying, they wouldn't need to fill their car with gasoline. Well, it's cheaper. And another time that drinking your own urine is good for the body. Who's to say it isn't? So, yeah, you've got to drink your own piss. You can't drink somebody else's. I hear the first urine of the morning is is the healthiest urine for you to partake in. I always make my coffee out of it. Really? Mmm, yummy. Yummy. Is that what I drank this morning? I made that one with poo. The Lafferty patriarch was not so easily persuaded. Watson Sr. returned early from an LDS mission because Dan's refusal to pay taxes had put the family business in jeopardy of being shut down by the government. Dan recalls calmly explaining his political activism to his father, only to have Watson Sr. respond by trying to perform an exism on him. Well, that's what happens when you try to mansplain a man. <laughs> to a man. <laughs> you know what? It's actually um, quite a pity that the exorcism didn't work because if anyone could have used one, it's Dan. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Dan, being the strange tightwad that he was, chewed food into a mush and then spat it into the mouths of his children instead of buying baby food. Ah, like a, like a bird. Yeah, like a bird. He's like a bird. Uh, he would insist on the family growing their own food or they would scavenge for it from garbage bins. When his wife Matilda disagreed with his radical ways, she was beaten in front of their children. He also got rid of all the clocks in the house. Ah, clocks are rubbish. They tell you 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 have to get out of bed and go to work. Oh, all that tick, 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 ticking. Yeah. Once during a traffic stop, he tried to outrun the police but was caught and was sentenced to 45 days in a medical facility, which he wasn't happy with at all. No, he wouldn't be. Mm Mm-mm. In 1982, the LDS church excommunicated Dan for trying to take his 14-year-old stepdaughter as a second wife. I thought you'd get promoted for that. Oh, not in the LDS. No, no, no. They're against that. Dan would eventually take a non-English speaking Romanian woman called Anna Rondok as his spiritual second wife. Does that mean it's not legal, so it's spiritual? Yeah. Ah, In 1983, the year their father died, Dan, Ron and their other brothers became increasingly involved in the School of the Prophets, which sought to recreate an institution of the LDS Church's early years. In 1968, fundamentalist Mormon Robert Crossfield published revelations he had claimed to receive. He named it the Book of Onias, and in it he reprimanded certain LDS Church leaders for what he perceived to be their failings. This caused controversy, which saw him become excommunicated in 1972. In 82, Crossfield established the School of the Prophets, who believed in the validity of some aspects of Mormonism, which were taught and practiced in the 19th century, when Joseph Smith and Brigham Young were in charge. They looked to uphold these tenets and practices, no longer held by conventional Mormons, such as plural marriage, the male rule of the household, and the united order, which is a form of egalitarian communalism. Mormon fundamentalists believe that these and other principles were wrongly abandoned by the LDS Church in its effort to fit into mainstream American society. I like your old stuff better than your new stuff. Yeah, pretty much. Uh. You know all the young women in prairie dresses with buffy hair and braids who get married off to old guys when they're in their early teens? 
that's their scene. Right. School of Prophets, love that shit. Love that shit, yeah. It was at this time Dan decided to make his family become self-sufficient. He allowed electricity in his house to be used only for the refrigerator and his wife was suddenly given the task of milking cows, bacon bread, tending chickens and boiling buckets of water to bathe her children. He also stated that girls must wear only dresses. Pants on a woman is the work of the devil and they had to stay in the home. Oh, yeah, working, also the work of the devil. Well, I'd agree with that. Well, because you're just working for the devil, I suppose. Well, yeah. He also took his kids out of school and insisted they be homeschooled. Yeah, just wants them all away from the uh, influence of the, the evil dark world. He went from being very clean cut and well-groomed to wearing his hair long, growing a very long beard and having the appearance of a mountain man. Dan's daughter Rebecca recalls her mother revolting against this pioneer living with pure passive-aggressive scorn. She'd let the chickens run through the house and say, okay, let's live free, and then she'd let the chickens just shit all over, Rebecca said with a laugh. She says her mother took a similar tack with Dan's interest in polygamy, openly encouraging him to find a sister wife, which she thought might give her an opportunity to leave Dan and his extremism behind. Mm. Yeah, get a sister wife, I dare you. Oh, man, get five. Get six. Who's to say six is enough? Get 12. Dan would later say he was plagued by sexual desires at this time. Hey, baby. But only because of the church's false teachings. When I was young and going to church, I thought because I couldn't stop masturbating (laughs) that I might be an evil person. And it tormented me so much that I contemplated castration as a possible way to stop offending God as I was mindfucked to believe I was, Dan says. In his vision of God's 1,000-year party, sex will be the key part of celebrating who we are as people. Unlike our current existence, he says, sex won't be a tool of domination over women. If anything, women will enjoy a greater satisfaction from sex than men do. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that last bit's actually in line with his ideology. <laughs> um, it sounds, sounds kind of off the mark there. Dan would later believe the church's teachings against sexual impurity as being one of the tools of oppression wielded by religion's merchants of guilt and fears. Meanwhile, things weren't going well for Ron. His wife, Diana, refused to let him have a sister wife. <sighs> Buzzkill. She was not into practicing polygamy, so she left him. Diana filed for and obtained a divorce and moved with their six children to Florida. Ron did not take this well. This was a precursor to Ron's steady descent into madness. He spent his days and nights in an old Orem home the brothers called The Farm, writing what he believed would one day be read as scripture. It was during this time that Ron first told his brothers that he had received a revelation that his ex-wife Diana had been the wife of the devil in a previous world. Ron believed their union angered the devil, who in turn caused him trouble in this world out of jealousy. Ron also called his youngest brother Alan's wife Brenda a bitch and told Alan that Brenda had better stop talking to Diana and he didn't want her meddling in their affairs. He also stated that Alan's infant daughter Erica would grow up to be a bitch just like her mother. Ron's anguish at his wife's departure then morphed into rage and he channeled it at three people. Chloe Lowe, a former LDS Relief Society president who had supported Diana during the divorce, Richard Stowe, the Highland LDS state president who'd presided over his excommunication, and Brenda Lafferty, the strong-willed wife of his youngest brother, Alan, whom he blamed for his wife Diana's departure. 
Well, so none of it's his fault, I see. Brenda Wright and Alan Lafferty had met at Brigham Young University where they both studied. She was different to the rest of the women his brothers had married. She was a former beauty queen with a degree in journalism who had the confidence to speak up where others were quiet. She didn't believe Ron or Dan were prophets and she wasn't afraid to let them know that. Brenda was tired of Ron and Dan's shit. When Brenda stopped Alan from joining school... When Brenda stopped Alan from joining the School of Prophets with his brothers, Ron's fury grew. First she had driven away his wife, now she was splitting up his brothers, is how he saw it. Women with their own opinions were not on the list of Ron's favourite things. No, they were not. He wouldn't sing that song from uh, Sound of Music and add that in. In March 1984, Ron used a yellow legal pad to scribble down what would come to be known as a removal revelation. He later shared it with the School of Prophets to the alarm of its members. Ron wrote, Thus saith the Lord unto my servants the prophets, It is my will and commandment that ye remove the following individuals in order that my work might go forward, for they have truly become obstacles in my path, and I will not allow my work to be stopped. First I brother's wife Brenda and her baby, then Chloe Lowe and then Richard Stowe, and it is my will and they will be removed in rapid succession. On the afternoon of July 24, 1984, 42-year-old Ron and 36-year-old Dan set out to fulfil the revelation. In a battered green station wagon, they drove to Alan and Brenda's American Fork duplex, carrying with them a sawed-off shotgun, a 30-30 Winchester, a 270 deer rifle and two pearl-handed knives. They would only use the knives. Dan and Ron were with their friends, Chip Carnes and Ricky Knapp, who had originally planned to go to Salt Lake City for the day. Before leaving, Ron told the group he felt they should go to his brother Mark's house to pick up a rifle. Once they arrived there, Mark asked what they were going to do with the gun because Ron had actually quit hunting years earlier. Ron replied that he was going to hunt for any fucking thing that gets in my way. The men then headed to Alan's apartment. When the four reached the apartment, Ron exited the car and knocked on the front door. The three other men remained in the car. When no one answered, Ron returned to the car and drove away, heading towards Salt Lake City. Before they'd driven far, Dan said he felt that they needed to return to Alan's apartment. When they arrived, Dan went to the door and knocked. This time Brenda Lafferty answered the door. Dan pushed past Brenda into the apartment and was inside alone with Brenda for a few minutes when the men in the car heard the two fighting inside the apartment. Ron then left the car and entered the apartment as well. Chip would later say that once Ron entered the apartment, he could hear him calling Brenda a bitch and a liar. He could also hear Brenda being physically beaten. From where he sat in the car in the driveway, Chip heard Brenda screaming, don't hurt my baby, please don't hurt my baby. He could also hear the baby crying, mummy, mummy, mummy. The apartment then became quiet. A few minutes later, Dan and Ron emerged from the rear of the apartment and entered the car, their clothes covered in blood. The man next drove to Chloe Lowe's residence. On the way, Ron told the others that Chloe would be an easy target because of her small size. When they reached Chloe's house and determined no one was there, the men broke into the house and took numerous items. I don't remember that being in the, in the 
revelation. <laughs> well, it must maybe it's a new revelation. Killer, but if she's not there, pinch her shit. Yeah, yeah, definitely something that uh, you've been advised to do. As they left the property, Ron began talking about going on to Richard Stowe's home. After accidentally missing the turn-off to the Stowe residence, Dan and Ron decided to abandon trying to fulfil the rest of the revelation. They stopped at a service station and then headed towards Wendover. Chip would later say that on the way, Ron pulled a knife out of his boot, started to bang it on his knee and said, I killed her. I killed her. I killed the bitch. I can't believe I killed her. He then handed the knife to Dan and said, Thank you, brother, for doing the baby, because I don't think I had it in me. Dan replied, it was no problem. Once in Wendover, the group rented a small apartment where they cleaned up, ate and spent the evening. The next night, afraid of what the Lafferty brothers had said they'd done, Ricky and Chip quietly left the apartment and drove away in the car. While travelling alongside Interstate 80, they found the knife in the car, rolled it in a towel and threw it out the window. Later in Twin Falls, Idaho, they disposed of a bag of bloody clothing and other personal effects belonging to Ron and Dan. They then proceeded to Chip's brother's house in Wyoming, where they were arrested on July 30th, 1984. In an interview in 2004, Dan Lafferty described his version of events. He claims responsibility for both murders, although he admits it was Ron who devised the murder plot. Dan recalls, It's never haunted me. It's never bothered me. I don't blame anyone for not understanding it, but if you had done it, it wouldn't haunt you either. It was a strange phenomenon. Dan said he and his brother were led by God to beat Brenda unconscious, wrap a vacuum cord around her neck until she was limp and then slit her throat. Brenda was only 24. I held Brenda's hair and did it pretty much the way they did it in the scriptures, he says proudly. Then I walked into Erica's room. I talked to her for a minute. I said, I'm not sure why I'm supposed to do this, but I guess God wants you home. He then looked away as he slit the 15-month-old baby's throat. Dan cut Erica so deeply, police said, that there was only a tiny thread of flesh left connecting her head to her body. I'd like to think she didn't suffer, he says. It probably should draw more sympathy than it does, but I don't let it. Terry Fox, the American Fork police chief, spent 12 hours at the crime scene. Afterwards, other officers had nightmares of warm blood dripping down their arms. He said the hardest part of this was the baby, going to the baby and sitting through the autopsy. Because I had a couple of young daughters, one who was the same age. You just ask yourself, why? As horrible as these murders were, it could have been a lot worse, Barney. Dan and Ron emerged from the American Fork duplex covered in blood, ready to fulfil the second part of the revelation. But luckily, Chloe Lowe wasn't home and Richard Stowe, who had previously presided over Ron's excommunication, well, as we know, the men missed the turn-off and they kept on driving. When Chloe and Richard learned that they were named in the so-called removal revelation, they went into hiding for several weeks. Richard, now the Highland LDS stake patriarch, will not talk about the murders. Several weeks later, Ron and Dan Lafferty were arrested in line at a casino buffet in Reno, Nevada. Dan said, I would have killed them the same way, but once the next step didn't happen, I knew it wasn't meant to be. There wasn't much enthusiasm for it. 
On the evening of July 24, 1984, Ellen Lafferty came home from work to find his wife Brenda and baby Erica lifeless in their apartment. Brenda was in the kitchen lying in a pool of blood. She'd sustained a severe beating and had contusions and bruises on her face, head, shoulders, arms, thighs, knees and back. Her throat was cut, a six-inch long incision sliced through her trachea, both jugular veins and both carotid arteries and left a cut in her spinal column. Blood was smeared on the walls, curtains, door and light switches and there was other evidence throughout the apartment of a major struggle. 15-month-old Erica was found in a puddle of her own blood, propped up against the back of her crib with her head slumped over. The medical examiner's report indicated that both Brenda and Erica were alive at the time their throats were cut. Alan Lafferty immediately pointed the finger at his brothers Ron and Dan. In 1985, Ron and Dan were convicted of the murders. Ron Lafferty, represented by a huge, expensive legal team, was sentenced to death by either firing squad or lethal injection. Did you know you get a choice, Barney? I didn't know that. Yeah, you do. Um, Ron would later choose firing squad. Ah, oh, good choice. Dan Lafferty, representing himself, was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The jury foreman said that Dan escaped the death penalty because he had somehow non-verbally seduced a woman on the jury. Hey, baby. <laughs> you got to do that with your eyes, though. <laughs> yeah, Not yeah. with your mouth. you you got to give them hey, baby eyes. Alan Lafferty admitted in court he knew about the revelation to remove his wife and baby Erica, but he didn't consider it a credible threat as he didn't believe his brothers had the balls to go through with it. These days, Dan doesn't think he will die in prison. He believes the walls will crumble and he will emerge as a biblical prophet Elijah announcing the second coming of Christ. I don't feel comfortable saying I know I'm Elijah, he says, but I'd be pretty surprised if I'm not. (laughs) Dan believes all organised religion is of the devil, although religion is his favourite topic of conversation. Everyone on earth is a child of God, he says, or a child of the devil. Ron, who tried to kill Dan in the Utah County Jail when they were first arrested, is a child of the devil, Dan says. Heaven, he believes, is a 1,000-year sex party. (laughs) Hey, baby. But more on that later. Dan's mother used to visit him, but he hasn't had a visit from the family he was born into in 15 years. Dan has never talked to his brother Alan about murdering his wife and daughter. Dan said, Alan once asked my mum why I wouldn't repent. There's some things you can't repent for. What I meant is you don't repent for things that aren't wrong. He stands by it. Yeah, they really do. Mm. Ron, still on death row, does not talk to the press. He is angry, Dan says, waiting for another chance to kill him. When Ron appears in court, he hurls expletives at the judge. The ongoing appeals and court proceedings that have delayed Ron's execution have been agonising for Brenda's family, forcing them to relive her brutal death. A federal appeals court ruled Ron's original trial judge failed to adequately address his mental competency. After a new trial, Ron was again found guilty of murder and sentenced to die by firing squad in 1996. 
Hey, Tara, this is my favourite bit of the whole story. <laughs> I know exactly what bit you're thinking of. <laughs> During this retrial, Ron wore a sign that read, Exit only on the seat of his pants to ward off evil spirits he believed wanted to enter his body through his anus. Well, sounds like where he got most of his ideas from. At this trial, Ron claimed true fairness was served by the act, immaterial of who carried it out. I don't care if Santa Claus committed the act. Justice was served. Yeah, so he stands by, um, you know, murdering his brother's wife and child too. Ugh. It's weird that, that that Dan and Ron don't get along anymore considering they have so much in common. Yeah, they're both assholes. Yeah. Hmm. Dan refers to prison as his monastery, and according to his present ideology, the earth is a garden where the flowers of Christ are being choked out by the devil's weeds, in keeping with the prophecy of the wheat and the tares from the Old Testament. These satanic weeds, Dan says, have had their run of the garden for 6,000 years, but the harvesting time is nigh. Dan sees himself as the one who will make the transition orderly so that the wheat, the children of Christ, can organise into communities of harmony while the children of the devil, the tares, are pulled root and stem from this world. After the nasty tear-plucking business is done, Dan said the God of Love's thousand-year sex party can finally begin. Hey, baby. And then the whole cycle just repeats itself. Ah, cool. Dan says both wheats and tares simply follow a program they cannot deviate from. For some people, that may mean a mundane nine-to-five existence, and for others, it could mean killing women and children. Dan says, I understand very well that my philosophy makes me sound crazy. Just a little bit. But I try to make it as logical as I can. But I don't mind if people think I'm crazy. And I don't know that I'm not. But I don't think that I am. I think there's some good shit coming. God's a good motherfucker. And when he comes back, he's going to be smoking a doobie saying, Tired of this world? Well, it's time to party. I really believe it. Yeah, apparently he embraced cussing in jail. <laughs> he didn't cuss before. I love it. I actually think uh, people listening probably thought that I just made that yeah. up. It wasn't. I didn't. This is a Dan quote, people. Yeah. Smoking joints, smoking joints with Jesus. Yep. In a 1,000 sex party, 1,000 year sex party. Woo. Woo. I don't know. That <laughs> might, you might need a little time out every now and then. Well, one person who won't be at this party, according to Dan, is his brother Ron, whom he hates and wants to kill. Right. Well, you know, that, that kind of escalated, didn't it? <laughs> As Elijah, Dan says he alone is blessed with the ability to see the eternal reoccurrence of life where 6,000 years of hell on earth is offset by a super sex party <laughs> where the chosen ones will get stoned off their tits on weed with Jesus and experience a guilt-free, mind-blowing orgy. Hey, baby. <laughs> wow. In 2003, the book Under the Banner of Heaven, A Story of Violent Faith by John Krakauer documented the origin and evolution of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the modern double murder committed in the name of God by brothers Ron and Dan Lafferty. The title of the book is drawn from an 1880 address by John Taylor, uh, the third most important member of Duran Duran and the third president of the LDS Church, defending the practice of plural marriage. He said, God is greater than the United States. And when the government conflicts with heaven, we will be ranged under the banner of heaven against the government. 
The United States may say we cannot marry more than one wife. God says different. In July 2011, Warner Brothers purchased the film rights to the book with Ron Howard directing and Dustin Lance Black writing the screenplay. It is still in development, Tara. Yeah, well, Hmm. I I would watch the shit out of that. Openly gay writer Dustin Lance Black was raised as a Mormon and has written for the HBO series Big Love, which was about a polygamous Mormon family in the modern world. It starred the late, great Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton! Chloe Savini and Harry Dean Stanton. Dustin Lance Black also won an Academy Award in 2009 for his script for the film Milk. Yep. You know the one with... um, Sean Penn. Sean Penn. Mm Mm-hmm. That's it. I was going to say Madonna's ex-husband. Yeah. Well, that's kind of how a lot of the research Uh, we do is kind of written. It's like she's his wife and you don't really say her name. Starring Madonna's ex-husband. The end. The book Under the Banner of Heaven also had a big impression on a woman named Christy Strack. Although she was only six years old when the Lafferty's murdered Brenda and Erica, she became obsessed with the case and with Dan Lafferty in particular. See, while she was reading the book, Christy had a vivid dream about Dan and eventually reached out to him. Deeply religious Christy and her husband Ben ended up becoming quite close friends with Dan. They even went to visit him in Utah State Prison on a pretty much weekly basis. Dan was said to be so fond of the couple that he wanted his remains to go to them when he died. He's hoping it's because they were secretly into taxidermy. (laughs) Dan reckons he and the much younger Christy were in love. He said her husband knew about it but didn't mind. Perhaps he was in love with Dan too. Maybe according to Dan, we're all in love with Dan. Yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) When Christy apparently asked Dan to cut off his waist-length hair, which he hadn't cut since his arrest, and sent it to the family... He happily obliged. What do you think they did with it, Tara? Maybe they knitted his and hers hair shirts. Oh, probably. Police said that Dan communicated with Christy like she was one of his children. And when she was fighting to overcome ovarian cancer, there was talk about Dan being able to cure it. In 2008, the Strax close friendship with Dan came to a sudden halt for a couple of reasons. Firstly, Christy tried to pass her brother off as her husband so that he could come visit Dan with her in prison. Well, you know, she wouldn't want him to miss out on that fun. When the authorities realised, they revoked her visiting privileges. But they would have been revoked anyway, as Christy and Ben, her husband, pleaded guilty to criminal charges, including forgery and drug possession, effectively ending their, their rights to visit anyhow. After this, Christy and Dan exchanged letters for a while, but the pen pals broke up when Christy told Dan that she didn't believe that he really was the prophet Elijah. The same year, Ben and Christy Strack began homeschooling their three children, Benson, Emery and Zion. 37-year-old brick mason Ben Strack hadn't been to work for a week when Christy Strack's oldest son from a previous marriage, Jansen McGee, found their family's dead bodies in a locked bedroom on September 27, 2014. Christy and Ben were found with cups of red liquid next to them while their children, 14-year-old Benson, 12-year-old Emery and 11-year-old Zion were discovered lying on and around the bed, covered with blankets up to their necks. Empty containers of cold and flu medication, allergy medication, sleeping pills, painkillers and cherry-flavoured liquid methadone were found nearby. Ben was found to have toxic levels of heroin in his system. 
Police concluded that Ben and Christy caused the death of their three children with a combination of the drugs. The two younger children's death were ruled homicide since they were too young to consent to any kind of suicide plan. They were unsure how to classify 14-year-old Benson's death. After the family were found dead, police discovered a letter from Benson to his best friend bequeathing some of his possessions, which showed that he thought he might die soon. Police said it's not clear how much the other children knew about the plan, but there were no signs of trauma or of a struggle. 36-year-old Christy was being prescribed methadone for her heroin addiction at the time of her death, so that's how they got that one. Authorities believe the only surviving child, 19-year-old Jansen, was not included in the murder-suicide because he was grown up and engaged to be married. Dan Rafferty said that he hadn't spoken to the Strax in years, but he believes that it was his hell-on-earth philosophy that led to the murder-suicides. Dan said, My insanity messes with people's lives. It's just the way it is. I'll miss them, but I'm happy for them. I believe they're in paradise now. Woo, sex party. They're enjoying the sex party. Mm. With their children. Yeah. Oh, what do the kids do during the sex party? And I don't think I want to know. Yeah, that's that's true. Those who knew Christy and Ben Strack said their mindset grew increasingly bizarre, culminating with the belief that the apocalypse was near just before they killed themselves and took their three children with them. Police didn't find any writings to show exactly what the couple believed when they died, but they often talked with family and friends about wanting to escape what they saw as a growing evil in the world. Friends and family thought that they meant that one day they would move somewhere remote and go off the grid, but no one thought they'd kill themselves. So everyone thought they just needed a tree change. Yeah, yeah, they were just like, oh, I guess they'll, you know, move out into a rainforest or something. Ron Lafferty has almost exhausted his ability to appeal his death sentence following a lost appeal in 2017. So there are only like potentially two other avenues for him to appeal at this point. And five other ways to choose his execution. Yes, yes. But he's got that sign, exit only, so the devil can't get inside his bottom. For now, Dan and Ron Lafferty sit in the Utah State Prison, as they have done for over three decades. One is awaiting execution by firing squad, and the other's waiting for the prison walls to come crumbling down. You could say I'm patiently waiting to see if I'm a larger, Dan says. I could be wrong. Maybe it's just a comfortable illusion. Mm. We should call this episode an uncomfortable illusion. These two men are ridiculous and uh, uh, so ridiculous. And but you're just killing these two wonderful people who Brenda and yeah, Erica. they didn't do anything they wrong. Didn't, they they did happened to be wrong. female, and and you know Brenda had like thoughts and opinions, and they were scared that Erica would one day too. Yeah, yeah, let's snuff them out and not ever regret it. Not cool. Not cool. So um, this case, which, by the way, we found fascinating, was a patron request from Alison Schaefermeyer. Thank you for bringing this one to our attention, Alison. Uh, I can see why you requested this case, as you don't live very far from where it happened. Yeah. Um, you're in Utah, right, Alison? Yeah. Wow. Hmm. So thank you. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So, Bonnie, what time is it? It's true crime nerd time. Woo! True crime nerd time. True crime nerd time. True crime nerd time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? You don't want to know. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we've got one here from Devon, from Calgary, Canada. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they love it when we say Canadia, the Canadians. <laughs> That's right. And Devon writes, Hi, Tara and Barney. I watched this gem the other day, abducted in plain sight. Oh, that's a doozy. And Devon goes on to say, I know that many of us true crime buffs are really into murders specifically. And while this story does contain a death, which I will not reveal due to the spoiler factor, it is more a story that starts with child molestation and webs into a whole lot more shit. Oh, it certainly does. Oh, God, yeah. My husband chose this movie to Netflix and chill. Hey, baby. And while I didn't expect much, there were times that my mouth was agape. Oh, well, yeah. And like birds flew into mine. Yeah, flies, birds, possums. Yeah. Flying foxes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, my mouth was agape and that we actually had to rewind to make sure that was what was said. <laughs> yeah, that sounds sounds about right. Yeah, it's all the relief. Um, oh. The baseline ineptness of the parents is what first gets you, but then you get into the interesting collaboration of families, authorities, and even a psychiatrist. I have never in my life heard a story that was more heartbreaking, disgusting, interesting, and just plain weird. The basic line is that there is an 11-year-old girl living in suburban United States that is abducted by a close friend of her parents. Twice! The details of how her parents dealt with it are unbelievable, and the details of how he got away with it are even more so. This story has sex, drugs, aliens, beaches, horses, and just about anything else you may be looking for in a true crime documentary. Yes, one word for you. Relief. Ah. Well, yeah, it, you, if you like true crime documentaries, you have to watch this. Yeah, it's, it's a must watch. It is. And if you don't have Netflix, you can actually get it on YouTube. That's how I saw it. Thank you, Devin. That was a, that was a good true crime nerd time toilet wine. <laughs> I'm so thirsty for toilet wine. Um, all righty. Well, before we get to the Aussie as, um, we should do a little bit of listener feedback. Yeah, let's do that. Jeanette Marie Price shared a post that was titled, How to Act Like an Adult. Now, I love it very much, and I think we can all learn something from this. Oh, this is a fine listicle. (laughs) A fine listicle. I will start. Number one, wear adult clothes. Do not wear baby clothes. Those are for babies. Number two, carry a briefcase. Do not carry a doll's head and mutter, come with me, my sweet little head. (laughs) Number three, get a job. Do not get a job as a candle jumper. That is not a job. Number four, buy a house. Fill it with relics. 
Shame is not a relic. Number five, eat salads. Great, glorious salads. No more meatloaf in the dark. No more taffy in bed. Why are you crying? (laughs) Number six, ride horses. Do not ride policemen. You will be arrested. Number seven, take a trip to Las Vegas. I'm sorry, you must. (laughs) Number eight, cough quietly. Never cough up a coin or a white stone or anything that may cause a person to point at you and exclaim, that is a child. Number nine, pray nightly. Say, God, please make it so. It will not be so. And yet, and yet. Number 10, remain cheerful. Chin up is a yes. Chin down is a no. Oh, that'll give you gun face. Yeah. So if you just follow those those simple 10 steps, you'll be an adult in no time. Ah, adulting. <laughs> Do not carry a doll's head around and mutter, come with me, my sweet little head. My sweet little head. <laughs> Tara, I have a question for you. Yes. Um, why? Why? What is Aussie as? Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I would. I'd like to thank Vince O'Connor for bringing this one to my attention. In November 1997, best mates Ross and Troy were pounding beers and partying like it was 1999 at their local pub, the Janilli Inn. Rosso had sunk around 15 schooners, which is over seven litres of beer, and he was super stoked to win a meat tray in a raffle. Woo! He and Troisy had also put their names down to take on all comers in a pool competition. Now, despite the fact that the pair had been in the pub for hours, it was only then that the publican noticed Rosso wasn't wearing any shoes and he asked him to put some on. The problem was Rosso wasn't actually wearing any shoes that day at all, so he didn't have any to put back on. Being a clever dick, Rosso came up with a better plan. He crept behind the bar and grabbed some masking tape, took two pork chops out of the meat tray, taped them to his feet and went back to playing pool. Sounds reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) You want shoes? I'll give you shoes. Yeah, meat shoes. Um, Pretty quickly, the fat from the chops had turned the pub floor into a gross, greasy mess. Rosso's mate Troisy, who was playing pool with him, went to take a shot, slipped on the pig fat and broke his arm. Troisy's arm was permanently damaged in the fall, which meant he could no longer work in his trade as an upholsterer. This prompted Troisy to take legal action against both his friend and the hotel for failing to foresee the debilitating dangers of wearing pork chops as shoes. The court was told that the pub continued to serve alcohol to Rosso, who said he was so pissed he couldn't even remember putting his pork chop shoes on. Troisy won the case, but the judge didn't find Rosso responsible, just the pub for failing to stop him from wearing his meaty loafers. The Janali Inn was held solely responsible for what occurred and was ordered to pay Troisy the lump sum of $61,515. Rosso thought the whole thing was piss funny, eh? And spent the trial sitting at the back of the courtroom in fits of laughter, wearing a suit made of braided sausages. Troisy refused to make any comment on learning of his damages payout, which was considerably less than the $750,000 he had sought. Rosso said he'd learnt a valuable lesson about meat trays from the whole fiasco. He said, oh, I just won't wear it, eh? I'll just cook it. Unfortunately, the two blokes are no longer best friends. Oh, that's the saddest part about this story. I know. They let pork chops come between them. Pork chop juice. 
Pork chop shoes. Pork chop shoes. No, I, I, I'm masking tape on my pork chop shoes. Then I grab my doll's head and I say, come with me, my sweet little head. <laughs> <laughs> so our friendship's been through worse things than this. And, yeah, uh, definitely. And, that's, and, uh, <laughs> and we're, we're, we're still mates. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, right. that's, that's lucky, I yes. guess. And yet, here we are. <laughs> and yet. <laughs> here we are with my sweet little head. <laughs> no more taffy in bed. Thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you would like to support us, visit our website. If you just want to buy us a drink because we're really thirsty, <laughs> there's a PayPal donate button there too. Hey, we got a donation this week actually. Oh, uh, who's paying for the drinks tonight? Jessica Cole. Thank you so much, Jessica. It's very generous of you. Thank you. Um, we'd also like to thank our Facebook group moderating team. Um, so thank you very much for your hard work. They do work hard, don't they? They do indeed. And it's some people get really mad at them for not being able to approve posts. And, and I just think that's fucking ridiculous, but okay. Well, they're stunningly beautiful too. Yeah. Did I mention that? Yeah, oh yeah. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saravan. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Uh, you can follow us on our Facebook page or join our group. Uh, we're on Twitter at Bloody Murder Pod and on Instagram at Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes, and merchandise, including our new bloody murder backpacks thanks for listening and we'll be back soon goodbye and adios and keep kicking against the pricks my sweet little head (laughs) (laughs) speaking of sweet little heads i'd like to congratulate beck and uh, tyler from the minds of madness for winning the people's choice awards yeah the canadian Uh, podcast Podcast awards well done guys you deserve it and thank you to uh wick studios for having us today oh yeah 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 it's been funny being in a different room i was kind of worried that it Oh, it's well, literally. And and figuratively. (laughs) Meditate on that. Yeah. It's all good because you brought your little head with you. Mm, Come with me, my sweet little head. And we shall recall Brook. And they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Well, we had to go over the railway tracks. Yeah, we crossed the railway tracks. It's not exactly abroad, is it? We're kind of on the right side of the railway tracks. Oh, as opposed to the wrong side where you come from, clearly. Well, that's right. You know, I'm a a bit of a uh, Uh, rebel. You're like the guys from the outsiders. Yeah, all of them. All the good parts of them all rolled into one. Yeah, that's That's you. what Barney Danger is. Yeah. Oh. Also, the, uh, the the bad parts of them went together and they made Dean Groover. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dean, Dean Groover doesn't believe in parts. No. Dean, Dean Groover believes in cocaine. Dean Groover is fully developed. <laughs> <laughs> no more meatloaf in the dark. No more meatloaf in the dark. Mm. Why are you crying? <laughs> I'm just imagining the singer Meatloaf in the dark crying now. <laughs> oh, meatloaf, no. Bitch Tits Bob. Aww. He should have got his own spin-off movie, Bitch Tits Bob. Yeah. He could have just had like a short program that was just him hugging different people. Yeah, him buying a bra in a women's shop and how awkward that would be. Oh, well, that's a shame. Because he's got boobs. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I like where this is going. <laughs> I love where this is no, going. No, this is no, no, no. Exit only. Don't. D- that's not going anywhere. Dean Groove loves situational comedies. Hey, so we've still got um, 
50 minutes left booked it for the studio. Maybe we should ho- record the next top 10 single. Okay, sure. Um, well, I'm guessing that Business Star is going to be involved in this one. You'll have to fill in a form. You have to fill in form 10026B. Dean Groover loves forms. Well, I don't know if Dean Groover can. He was just in the last one. Pass Dean Groover a pen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't believe that you can use any of my pens, Dean Groover, Mr. Groover. Um, you can use a pencil. I prefer the form to be filled out with a pencil, Mr. Groover. Dean Groover doesn't care. Just let me fill in the forms. <laughs> <laughs> Patrons have access to Dothan. 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 Patrons have access to Dothan. Patrons have access to the contents of my jorts. No, no, thank you. How do I unsubscribe? And I'll also pass a towel to you as you get out of the shower. Well, yeah, that's true. He'll do that. Uh, Not everyone wants to know about what's in your pants, though. And I'll cut your toenails while you sleep. Mm, With his teeth. Red leather, yellow leather. After graduating from high school, top of his class in June 1960, Ron was sent to Florida for two years to become a missionary. He excelled. <clears throat> he excelled in the position. In the position of missionary. Mm, yeah, that's my second favorite position. Oh God, what's the first? CEO. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Should I leave now? Uh, it's too hot to board, don't you think? Right. His brother Dan would do his missionary work in Scotland. Ah, <laughs> murder. His brother Dan would do his missionary work in Scotland, Rawr. where he would meet his wife Matilda, who was divorced with two children. That's Sorry. really not. That's not. That's not helpful. That's not very. Do you think that you're being helpful right now? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm kind of into it. Let's just do, do the whole thing like that. Rawr. I'm going to get in on it too. Or is it like a man only thing? It's a man only thing. Should I reread it's my, it's that? My, it's my white privilege. Yes, I know. White man privilege. Keep the contents of your jorts in your jorts. I will not. Jorts. He would not let his wife Matilda speak. No, he wouldn't. He would not let his wife Matilda podcast with hairy bastards. What? <laughs> and the United Order, which is just a form of egalitarianism. Ah, 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 Women with their... Mm. I, I can fix her pause. Okay. Yeah. Dean Groover doesn't believe in pause. <laughs> <laughs> An evening? Why not the whole two weeks? Why not two weeks? Two weeks straight, <laughs> no sleep. <laughs> yeah, I've got a big ass and you've got a stupid little ass. Can't that both be true, Barney? They can both be true. Yeah, we can live in a world where... where <laughs> Well, I could get true. I could get two bunnies in this chair. Yeah, and what I was saying is it's smaller than my bun. Are you using a cushion? No. It's your sweeter to push in. <laughs> I like my push and sour, thank you very much. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. No, well, uh, you know, then my mic would have to be even higher up and that would be even more like shoes competency. and shit in the bag and competency and competency. buckets of shit. I wish I had beer in my mouth. In 1991, a federal appeals court ruled Ron's original trial judge failed to adequately address his mental competency. Address his mental competency. 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 
Address his mental competency. 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 Address his mental competency. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get some more water. Do you want some? Are there any other choices like getting shot out of a cannon into the mouths of hungry sharks? Yeah, yeah, that was an option, but he he chose not to not to go there. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, really? You think? Sounds spectacular. <laughs> I mean, it sounds magnificent, but unpleasant, like life. You're just swearing to try and sound cool right then, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. Had, 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 did I come off sounding cool? Did yeah, it work? Well, you know why I thought you were swearing to sound cool? Because when you swore, I was like, God, Barney's cool. Yeah. Only cool people swear. Thanks. Yeah. Fuck. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Shit, that was cute. I slap people who say we swear to be cool with a fish. Just a little bit. With a little little fish. Little, did little you, slap. Did you see those that, that video of the slapping turtle? Oh, um, I didn't watch the whole thing. I don't have time for turtle videos. It God, was just, what do you think I leave just, a life of luxury? It was just a turtle slapping another turtle in the face. Yeah, constantly. A bit. Oh, well, it's I, kind of like our friendship. I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, you would turtle slap. <laughs> well, I couldn't stop watching it. <laughs> Should I do that normally or are we no, okay with no, it? No, <laughs> I liked it. I liked it. It was foreboding. You know I'd like to read the whole thing in weird voices, given yeah, half a chance. Carrying your little <laughs> doll's head. Ah, come. With me, my sweet little head. <laughs> God, I just love it. I just love it. The same year, Ben and Christy Strack began homeschooling their three children in Benson. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Inside uh, and their I, oldest. And I love that show, Benson, from the 80s. <laughs> I did wonder myself if that's why he got called that. <laughs> He's like a guy, a black lawyer or some shit. Yeah, that's a, yeah, didn't he play jazz or something? I don't know. Mm, yeah, it all just... Sounds racist at this point, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> Fucking hell. It was a good show. I liked it. Yeah, I, me too. 37-year-old brick mason Ben Strack hadn't been to work for a week when Christy Strack's older brother from a son. previous marriage... Older son. You said brother. Oh, fuck. That's fine. Just say it again. No, I will okay. not. Well, you about it a bit longer. I'm going to storm off. Okay, well, do. we don't have to go be out of here for an hour and 21 minutes. So I reckon you could I reckon you could have a good 20 minutes like for, like tantrum time if you want. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where's my little head? Come with me, my pretty little head. Come with me, my sweet little head. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, you get to say that really cool line too. No more eating taffy in bed. No more meatloaf in the dark. <laughs> Why are you crying? <laughs> Empty containers of cold and flu medication, allegory meditation, allegory meditation, after the family were found dead, after, after the, okay, maybe slow down slightly. Because it sounds like you're drowning a little bit over there. Allegory allegory meditation. meditation. I'll take three, please. (laughs) Allegory meditation. Exit only. That's my butt sign. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you devils don't crawl up my ass. Oh, well, they will if you don't have a sign there because they can read. Oh, right. 
Don't let the devil crawl oh, up your butt. I'm just about to crawl up this arse here. Oh, oh, it says exit only. Oh, shit. Wrong arse. I'll move on then. I'll move on. I'll move on to a, an arse that doesn't have an exit only sign. Is that how it works? That's exactly how it works. You that's know what, how the devil gets inside your arse. You know how that's. You know what that's called? That's called allegory meditation. <laughs> well, I mean, if you can think of a better way to do it, I'd like no, to hear about right. it. And I'm Tara Sarah. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the park. Especially poo in the park? Especially around the toilet area. (laughs) In the middle of the night. Now, does it sound better if I try to be quiet? Does it sound better if I try to be quiet? We're recording in a studio today. Because of extreme heat conditions, the home studio was unsuitable today. Yeah, the sweat would have been dripping into our eyes and we wouldn't be able to read or see or anything. Um, so we had to hire a studio and it's nice and cold like a fridge. It is. a lovely Wick Studios there in Leslie Street, Brunswick. Go and check it out. It's yeah, good. Yeah, make us easier to stalk, Barney. Nice work. <laughs> <laughs> well, they come here asking for us. Yeah, that's They'll right. They'll just send them to your house. It's not far away. Well, uh, yeah. They'll no, draw, why don't you draw a map and leave copies here in case anyone wants to stalk you? Is that a good idea? Yes. Oh, that's right. It's a very good idea. Oh, hey, so what about that review we got where someone was like, you know, uh, good research and content, but um, stop swearing so much to sound cool. They reckon we swear to sound cool, but it actually makes us sound like a 12-year-old, which is a shame because I think swearing's just... I only do it to sound cool. Fuck. Yeah, they're okay with decapitations and and murdering of infants, but swearing. No, and also why else would you swear unless you were trying to sound cool? Does it work? Hey, so I ended up, um, I I have a poo story. I know you like those. Oh, I do like those. Yeah, I was walking Pop this morning and she did a poo and it looked like a big scoop of uh, coffee ice cream. Yeah. Yum. And I picked it up in the, you know, special poo bag that you get from the park and then I was I was tying up the top of it and then ploink, the whole bloody big blob of it just fell on my shoe, which confused me. Oh, so um, it had two ends, did it? Uh, yeah. Two open ends. I actually believe that someone might have like punked whoever was coming along oh. by opening up the end of the loose dog bag there so that I would get poo shoe. Ah, the poo bag saboteur. Uh-huh. That's the name of my fourth album. I believe it is. Nice one, Aston Kutcher. No one jumped out of the, the, the bushes and went, you've been punked. Oh, Which is this. a shame because that would have been fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> hey, my girlfriend was in Canberra this weekend. Oh, did she die of excitement? <laughs> it is a well, nation's it, capital. It was her parents' 50th anniversary, so she had to go up for a little party. Oh, she was wow. there for a few days and she saw her grandfather, who's 99. Oh. He's only got half a nose because he was a farmer and he lost half of it in the, you know, by skin cancer. Oh, shit, yeah. So when you've got a 99-year-old grandfather, every time you see him, you've got to act like it's the last time and be nice to him. Yeah, yeah. All that kind of stuff. And uh, he told her, yeah, I don't even bother buying green bananas now. Oh, that's a knee slapper, granddad. Yeah, it's pretty funny. And then she told her parents that joke that her grandpa had said that, and he and, and they said, "Oh, he's still telling that joke. He's been telling that for ten years." <laughs> <laughs> oh, good one. I yeah. mean, if you're ninety nine, I reckon you can do whatever the hell you like. I reckon. I guess you'll get a telegram from the Queen. By the way, that doesn't automatically happen. You have to apply for it. Oh, well, that's not very cool. Because some people don't care about it, so she's not going to bother. <laughs> She's not just spamming people with her congratulations on their age. No. She's got better shit to do. 
Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, I did not know that. I would like a telegram on my birthday from the Queen. Really? I, I think that would be lovely. Why? I like the Queen. You know it's just a form letter, right? No, it's not. It's personally. Personalised. Oh, it's, dear it's Bernaldo, personal. I love everything about you. Sexy Barney is my favourite. Yum, yum. Shit love Her Majesty. Yeah, that's right. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, So, you know, I'm all G'd up on extreme heat, chicken grease and cola. What about you? I'm ready to go. Okay, cool. <clears throat> okay. That's what the highlighters are for, numb nuts. Well, I was distracted. Bye. I was I was thinking about this bird I saw flying the other day and um, it had a wonky leg and I was thinking about that. Instead of highlighting the passages that you're supposed to read. Well, yeah, it was a really freaky looking bird. You're like Ralph Wiggum as an adult sometimes, you know. I get distracted easily. <laughs> Shiny. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what it would feel like in my mouth. What? The bird mm. with the wonky leg? Yeah, I feel feel. <laughs> Pointy. I don't know. I don't think it'd enjoy it. <coughs> I, I was thinking more about my own pleasure sensations. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Pointy feet. <laughs> How do birds have sex? With extreme difficulty. They've got cloacas. So. Okay. Now, remember how we were like in a, a studio that we paid for for a certain amount of time with money? Well, yeah, it's better than being in my hot box. I know, but it also means that, like, we have to get our shit together and do it because the time will run out. Okay. And then a guy with a beard will probably come in and, like, you know, give us a look. You had a man bun too. One of them did. The other one was a beardo without a man bun. Well, that's a a misstep really, isn't it? I'm still waiting for your man bun to come along. Well, I'm bald. A man bunny. You could get like a back bun. A back bun. <laughs> <laughs> you can make a bun from the rest of your body hair. Oh, wow. <clears throat> I should do that. For yes. your, maybe for your birthday. Oh, but it was just my birthday in January and oh, yeah. you didn't. Remember you were going to get cornrows? Whatever happened to that? That was a few years ago. Yeah, but did it happen? I was going to get cornrows for your birthday. I've been waiting patiently. <laughs> By the way, it would be a terrible idea. You don't want to look like Bo Derek. <laughs> <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. (laughs) 